Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars. Will be stopped. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Wow,、uh, that's a treat for us to be able to sing after the reading of Scripture.、Um, the reading of God's word ought to make His people sing. Amen.、Uh, I'm Pastor Robert、uh, of King's Cross Church, and let me just get this in here. Anil Hashnika Yorobun. Hello, everyone. Got to get some Korean in there for all of. My Korean homies. Well, it is a pleasure to and an honor to be here to be able to preach God's word with two pastors and friends who I consider、uh, very dear partners in the ministry of the gospel,、uh, Scott and Ren. So this is a this is an honor for me、uh, to bring this, and always an honor to preach God's word. You know, regardless to、uh, which church you attend. Uh, you're probably aware, to some extent, that we're in a season called Lent.、Uh, it's the season of forty days leading up to Easter Sunday, and the forty days it mirrors Jesus' forty days in the wilderness, which is mirroring、uh, Israel's forty years in the wilderness. And in this season, the church is called to consider just what does it mean to be in the wilderness, and what how have we contributed. To being in the wilderness, how is God calling us to return and repent, and fasting and in prayer? And the psalm this morning that we're looking at,、uh, that we bring before you, is as you heard read so beautifully in Psalm sixty-three. It's a psalm all about the wilderness. Psalm all about what it means to be in the wilderness. And yet, as you know, Israel doesn't stay in the wilderness. David, who is the author of the psalm, doesn't stay in the wilderness. We are not meant to remain in the wilderness, and Jesus Himself doesn't remain perpetually in the wilderness, but He returns. If you remember your Gospels, He returns with tremendous power to a city with power and preaching 
and healing and works of the Holy Spirit. So here's the question for us churches, people of God. Here's a question that we're going to set out with. How can we, the body of Christ, return to living among the communities and workplaces and neighborhoods? We've been in a long period of wilderness. What does it mean to return with the power and presence of God? Perhaps in a way that we didn't possess prior to the pandemic. Can we actually return with greater promise and hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ? As we think about this uh, wilderness theme, I, I, I'd lo love to ask my brother Scott um, what things struck him as he was reading this passage and kind of lead us into the text itself. So, brother. Yeah, you know, the, the metaphor of wilderness, most of us probably resonate in some way with it. But I wonder how many of us think of this period as being in the wilderness. You know, you look at the, the biblical examples of, of people being driven into the wilderness, and they're always driven out somewhere. So in the book of Exodus, uh, God's people in Egypt are driven out and into the wilderness for 40 years, where they wander, being tested, um, provided for by God, but languishing. Elijah, uh, before the prophets of Baal, Jezebel wants to kill him, so he goes into the wilderness where he's discouraged and overwhelmed. Jesus baptized, driven into the wilderness. And now this passage with David, you know, the the, the well, phrase at the start of the psalm, it's a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And we don't know if it's when he was fleeing Saul, likely, or when he was fleeing Absalom, uh, at least two periods where David was driven away and into the wilderness. Um, I don't know that any of us feels like we've been driven out anywhere. We've been sheltering in place. We've had to stay at home. And not everybody has a home. Not everybody loves their home. But I think most of us have a cushioned couch and we have access to Netflix or some device that this period doesn't feel like we've been driven out into a place of suffering, but we've just had to stay home. And it feels more like we're waiting for a bus that never arrived uh, than actually going out into a season of temptation. And yet as city churches, uh, there is this common place that we go to where we eat restaurants or where we take food from. We go to movies and to museums and to the theater and we, we don't go to backyards, all of us, but a lot of us go to parks. Um, sheltering in place is sending us away from where people are gathered into isolation. And so maybe it doesn't seem like the wilderness, but, but look at the wilderness experience where people are discouraged. They're isolated. Their mind starts to go places where, where they can't make sense of why they're just bored or they're tired or they're feeling bad about themselves or they're hopeless. And that does mark this period. And so one of the things I keep hearing from people is, yes, you know, Zoom is good. Yes, we're really assembling. But, but there's something about being in the presence of God's people and hearing voices and, and having the spirit there that, that lifts up my soul, that, that even though I know God is with me, I feel spiritually dry. And that dryness, you know, that's wilderness language. Uh, and when we were talking about this, Ren, Robert, and I, we, you know, this question comes, how, how do we get to, to this place where, where this dryness, this uh, source of temptation, um, this confusion is part of the human experience. And Robert, you, you had some some thoughts on that. What what is it? How, you know, how did we get here? How did we get to a place where where life feels like wilderness? Yeah, I, I think I'm very quick to point the finger at God. If and if I'm anything like if we're anything like each other, uh, you know, when we're brought into a season of dryness of desert. Often the question comes to God, you know, 
how long are you going to keep me here? And why have you brought me here? And it, it, that could be, you know, we know God disciplines uh, his children because he loves us, right? He doesn't just let us go unruly. And yet, you know, when I look at the biblical narrative, God is the maker of gardens, not necessarily the maker of deserts. And in fact, one way of reading Genesis, you might be able to say that the desert, the wilderness, the thorn, the thistle, it comes from human rebellion. That comes from the human desire to turn away from God, the inward bend in our hearts. Um, we are inherently desert makers, is what the Bible teaches. And I, as I'm thinking of what, what, who is a good example in popular culture of a desert maker, maybe it's just because I finished the series, but uh, Brian Cranston's Walter White, right? Breaking Bad, right? The story of um, a high school teacher who is becoming this international drug lord, right? Now that's not so believable necessarily, but what is very believable is how he deludes himself the whole time as to why his relationships and his entire family and everyone around him has been plunged into this desert experience, right? If you've watched the series, Walter White, you know, he, he as a result of his actions of pursuing power and glory, if you will, uh, bringing divorce and death to everyone around him, remains steadfast in excusing himself, claiming the noble high ground of doing it all for his family. Meanwhile, he's aghast, he's bewildered. Why are such bad things happening to me? Why am I growing distant from my family? Why am I growing distant from my friends? Why am I so alone and so frustrated? He's so clearly, and everyone around him, he's brought them into a season of desert wilderness wandering. And it's not until the final season, of course, until he admits, you know, all of this I did because I enjoyed it. I felt alive. That's why I did it. You get the confession there. Finally, the truth is revealed and he is honest with himself that he is the creator of that wilderness. Um, now, I don't know, uh, if, if Scott, if you're looking at this passage, is, is that where that kind of leads us to the same conclusion here as well? Um, do we see proof of that? Yeah, wilderness is clearly a sign something's wrong something wrong in our world, but then we grapple in the wilderness with what's wrong with us. You know, that's how we're experiencing this. The example you gave of somebody who seeks power and glory for himself, uh, and it brings ruin. Now, is there something wrong with power and glory? Well, no, that's what David is thinking about. But there's something about how human beings uh, grasp for power, um, try to create glory that winds up being self-destructive, spiteful. We, you know, we, we ruin ourselves. You know, the, in the passage that we're looking at, verse one talks about this human longing for life, for life in all of its fullness. And so it begins, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So, so David's literally in the wilderness, but our experience of feeling dry and weary, there's a thirst in us that we are dying to, to have quenched. And sometimes in our desperation, we think, what a, I feel weak, so I need empowerment. And so we seek power, but in a corrupt way. Uh, my, my life and everything around me is ugly. And so I, so I want something transcendent and beautiful. So we seek after glory, but we do so with such desperation that we're not really satisfying our basic thirst. And so the analogy with human beings and water, you know, my understanding is the human body is roughly 60% water, 
the heart and brain around 73%, we're made up of water, we require water, and therefore thirst is, is natural to us. Um, and we have various other beverages, but it, it's H2O that we want in them. Our bodies, when we drink milk or juice or soda, uh, you know, everything that, that uh, is healthy for a human being to drink, or at least not, you know, mercury is a liquid, but I don't know that there's H2O in it, but uh, whether or not there is, you should not be drinking it if you're thirsty. Uh, but soda, you know, when you're hydrated, soda we drink for its, its pleasure. So it, 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 it hydrates us, but it also gives good taste. But if you're out on a really hot summer day and you're exercising and you're sweaty and you didn't plan and you didn't bring water with you, you know, you have a soda and because it's wet, it feels good. It's satisfying. But the sugar stays in your mouth. And then afterwards, you don't you don't feel like you're quenched. Or if you if you have a beer or coffee, which are diuretics, you you take in a liquid. But then, you know, 10 hours later, if you're not drinking water, you, you're, you're still languishing. And uh, the Bible is presenting human beings as spiritual beings made by God with a life that he puts into us. And that life is meant to be sustained as we drink from God. And so we're thirsting for it. But what happens in our sin and our brokenness and our confusion, in our wandering, we, you know, we get cut off. We, we wind up away from what's life-giving. And then we, we feel that thirst. And this COVID period has cut us off from all sorts of normal, just human things, shaking hands and hugging. Uh, hearing voices, being able to get out and have a change of scenery. And, and so there's the opportunity that you raised in the intro, uh, Robert. Uh, can we come out of this different? Because right now we're being forced to, to, to look at what are the things that had been giving us life that we don't have or we still have, but are not giving us life. And it's an opportunity to look and to say, look, my fundamental spiritual thirst is God-centered. So verse two, he's talking about this thirst. He says, I've looked at you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And so here's the thing about power and glory. Are they, are they terrible, corrupt? We would be tempted to say so if you look at human history, but power is good. Glory is good when they're rooted in God, whose love is steadfast. What happens is we want power because power advantages us. We want glory because glory makes us feel good or makes others feel good about us. And as soon as God and his steadfast love are not the anchor, then everything we're doing to, to, to build a resume, uh, to be better and stronger than others, uh, to, to fill our lives with entertainment, all of these things that could be good if they're grounded, but are these broken off pieces that, that we take into our lives that feel at the moment like they're satisfying us, but they'll leave us more spiritually dehydrated. So at the end, uh, we're confused, we're broken. Verse one, uh, what makes David's experience um, something for us to learn from? It's not that he had it all figured out, not that he says, I'm in the wilderness and life is wonderful. He's a human being like us. He's struggling and, and he's, he's suffering and he's feeling like he's thirsty, like he's in the desert, but he says, oh God, you are my God. And that's where we get confused because sometimes we say, oh, work, you are my power. Oh, good looks and exercise, you are my glory. And it's not steadfast love. And so it satisfies us for the moment. And yeah, your social media feed will give you something transcendent with sights and sounds and something wonderful to look at for the moment. But when you're done, you're still left sheltering in place, saying what gives life. And what we're told here is God gives life. 
And when he gives it, even if we're struggling, if we look to him, we hope that there will be a power and glory that's life-giving, not corrupting. Now, I've been highlighting uh, our own experience. We're, we're in the wilderness. Uh, we're alone. We're isolated. We're alone with our thoughts. But, but we don't always get to the wilderness because we're alone in, in the world. We, we get there because we live in a world that, as Robert highlighted, uh, has the tendency to create wildernesses more than gardens. Ren, this was something that you had noted. What is it about David's experience that's not just about his psychological well-being, but is about the context in which these words come? Yeah, I, um, let me let me just, you guys have opened up that up, and let me just say that I identify with the fact that we're in the wilderness because we're shooting ourselves in the foot by seeking power and glory for ourselves and not for God. So it's so internally imposed thirst and dehydration um, but what my mind gravitated to was that there's a wilderness that we're all experiencing that can come from the outside. And it's good to acknowledge that. We're all in quarantine and tired and working at 40% capacity because COVID has come upon us from the outside, that the world has fallen. But in David's case, I want to argue that he's, he's thirsty, not just for power and glory of God to come in, but he's, he's thirsty for, I'm, I'm going to call it justice, that he's weary and tired because there's something wrong with the world and it's coming down and breaking his heart. That little preamble at the beginning, that this was a prayer that when he was in the wilderness of Judah and the commentaries are trying to decide whether or not this was the wilderness, this was the exile when Saul, King Saul was chasing him and pursuing his life uh, or when Absalom was pursuing his life. Either commentaries disagree, but it's one, it's one or the other. Um, but both of them are, are, are unjust. He's alone in the darkness, no food, no water, thirsty and hungry, seeking any kind of encouragement he can. Why? Because God said to him, I love you. You're my beloved. You're my anointed king. I choose you to lead my people as king of Israel. And here are two Israelites trying to kill him and become king themselves. And it's worse, actually, if it's Absalom, because in that case, he's, he's not only being pursued because uh, Absalom wants to be king, but it's his own son. His own son trying to kill him. And so the injustice in his, and, and, and it would have been for the second time, but it's Saul first and then Absalom, his son. <laughs> um, and so this kind of injustice is landing on his heart as, listen, these are two people who should have loved me more than anybody you should have affirmed me because God affirms me, but the people who should have been loving him are not loving him. They're lying about him. They're putting him to the sword. And so he has to run, run away. You know, I'm starving and thirsty because of them. That's what he says toward the end. He's just like, I may the mouths of the people who are lying about me be stopped. May the people who are pursuing me by the sword, may they be given over to the sword. And so David is experiencing this wilderness of people coming and, and seeking his life as pain, even though God says, I love you. And there is this existential disconnect between the two. Yes, I believe God loves me, but in my experience, the way that he, that he should have sent it to me, it's all jacked up. I'm distant from the experience of God's love. Now, can I tell you why this psalm was helpful for me this week? I have to tell you that like many Asian Americans, when we heard about what happened in Atlanta, uh, we're not doing okay. 
I'm not doing that well this week. After hearing about Asian American women being targeted, it's been hard to think about anything else. A man went to three places targeting Asian American women, shot them, and in the aftermath, the cops said that it wasn't racially motivated. Don't jump to conclusions about that. And as a result, Asian Americans are in the wilderness right now. We're experiencing that as pain that people, well, I would say we should expect to be loving us and showing us compassion, are not showing us love and compassion. And so I'm in the wilderness. I want the mouths of the liars to be stopped. I, it made me think actually of also our Latino friends after the shootings in El Paso when Latinos were, were targeted, specifically targeted. And we were told, no, listen, this is more of an issue of uh, psychology than it is of racism. It made me think of our Black friends living with this most of the time as, uh, as emotional static in the back of their heads having to make the case that the statement Black Lives Matter is actually a statement that affirms that all lives matter. In other words, the wilderness is sometimes caused by people who should love you and care for you, but betray you instead. Like God loves you, but your experience of that with the people of God causes you pain instead. And so David's heart, like ours, is thirsty for justice, for, for the world to be made right. You don't have to be a minority, by the way. You only have to be someone who someone else told a lie about. <laughs> that breaks your heart too. It ruins your whole month. I hate, I hate movies where the plot is dependent on a misunderstanding where someone says something about something that's just not true. And there's all kinds of chaos. And so for now, it causes David to be alone in a wasteland with no food and no water tired and lonely. I need that to be acknowledged. Thank God it is in Psalm 63. But man, Scott, will you please give us something that this passage has that will help us? Yeah, I could give you nothing. But uh, fortunately, this passage does have some practices that help us with the inevitable question that comes up, what do I do? And, and what do I do is is sometimes a dangerous question because there's not a lot we can do. And it's, it's not always the first order question, but it's inevitable. Here I am alone and here I am struggling. And so what do I do? Uh, and for the sake of time, I'm going to group into three categories, some things that we see in this passage David does. How does he seek God and, and, and exist in this overwhelming, unjust, discouraging experience? Uh, and I'm going to just talk briefly about grasping, meditating, and celebrating. So first he grasps. And what I'm talking about here is seeking and holding to. In verse one, he says, earnestly, I seek you. And that language of seeking, of searching after God throughout the whole Bible, clearly it comes up with Jesus, uh, who in Matthew 6, says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. These other things will be added to you. So what is it that gives life? Uh, that's what we seek after. And, and the promise is those who seek, find. Those who ask, it will be given to them. Well, well, what kinds of things did the Bible tell us to seek after? We'll seek after life. And God will give it to you. Seek after forgiveness. Seek after the spirit. God gives these things to those who keep seeking. And so, so, so David is seeking at a time when he doesn't feel the spirit, when he's, when he's removed from the worship and glory. 
But in verse 80, he says, my soul clings to you. So this grasping is about seeking. But once you find, you hold on to what you found. And so Jesus, who comes and says, seek and you will find in me. You know, then when we feel cut off or we feel isolated, we don't go look for the next thing as if Jesus was helpful in our teen years, but not now in our 20s or 30s. But we cling to what we know is true and we keep seeking in a deeper way. Uh, God, I know that that's true. And so I will hold to that. So we so we grasp, we seek, we take hold of what we can and we keep seeking in a deeper way. Secondly, we meditate. And so in verse two, he says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. It was real. He was there in the presence of God's people. And, and it was so real that now he's not feeling it. He's not experiencing it, but he looked upon it. And so in verse six, he says, when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, he's bringing to mind what's true, even if he's not feeling the fullness of that truth, he's, he's bringing that into the, the confusing and broken reality. And this week was a really hard week. And, you know, people respond differently emotionally, but for myself, if I'm troubled, uh, it, it manifests itself with insomnia. So the latter half of the week, I was waking up three or four in the morning. Um, and so what do you do? <laughs> I want to go back to sleep. And I know that thinking about these things are not solving the world's problems or even helping me to digest them. And so what I did this week is I tried to remember <laughs> what's true and meditate on it. And so I remembered that God is just. He, he has shown that to us. And I believe it, even if I don't see it. I, I believe that the gospel is hopeful. There's a future hope that, that we cling to. And right now, it doesn't feel hopeful. It feels impossible. And so what do you do? Was it a quick fix? Did I feel amazing and go back to sleep? No, but in the watches of the night, I didn't want my mind to go where it would naturally go. Because if your mind is, is not shepherded, it never goes to a healthy place. It leads your body to the wilderness. But in the watches of the night, if we say, Lord, I want you to be my shepherd, then I will meditate. I will look upon the power and glory by faith that you've shown me in the past through your kindness and mercy. And I will, I will grapple with that. And that will sustain my thirst. While I'm languishing, I will not believe lies and I will not be given over to corruption, but I will follow you even if I'm confused. And then we celebrate. And sometimes we, we really celebrate when we come out of the wilderness. But, but there's a sense in which one of the things we do is the action of faith is to say right now, you know, there's meant to be a coherent experience where from the inside, I see the gospel fullness, God's work in the world. I have the understanding of his redemption and I can't help but celebrate and praise God. But when we experience our own brokenness, it's by faith that we have to hold on to right now. I don't feel like praising God. But, but God is still good. My life is not good. Our world is not good, but God is good. And therefore, the celebration happens not because it's my first instinct, but because it's fundamentally true. And when lies are being told, when there's deception in our confusion, we need to be anchored in truth. So he says in verses three and four, because your steadfast love is better than life. That's true. Your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. That's what he will do. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift my hands. And it could sometimes feel inauthentic. As religious people, we want to be so careful that we don't get in the habit of going through the motions, that we don't sing with our lips, but not engage our hearts and minds. But the trap then is sometimes when we're so discouraged, what we need most is to sit in the, the presence of the goodness of God, that it feels inauthentic because we're angry and we're hopeless and we don't see God. 
And what we really need at those times is the faith to say, well, well, it is authentic if it's true. <laughs> if God is glorious, if I've beheld his power and glory, well, then I will hold to that as fundamental and I will choose. I will, I will tell my lips what to say and I will tell my mind what to think about while my heart is not knowing where I am. Hmm. Um, Robert, do, do you think Christians are, are doing this? Do you think churches are doing this? Are we, are we taking advantage of the practices we have available to us? <laughs> I feel convicted right now it's just lat in my lack of earnestness as you're kind of going through the word. I mean, the word's convicting me of, you know, I need your prayers, brothers, because I've been seeking God, but I don't think I could uh, in court say that I could prove that it was earnest. And gosh, um, it's... It's not a call to do this, these things, and then we're drawn out of the wilderness. But I have to say that what is drawing me right now is remembrances of the times that I have sought him and found him. They have been the most refreshing seasons, moments, experiences in this COVID season that I've had since lockdown. Yeah, the, the practice of worship, because uh, that's what we're talking about. If, if God is better than life, if he is our God, then there's power and glory in him. But we access that normally by assembling and reminding ourselves in our, in our unbelief, we hear the voices of others who are believing better than we are. And this sheltering in place period, we, it's true, but we're not hearing the voices and therefore our, our, our worship is suffering. But, uh, but, but the question is, what is really life giving is, is a question about worship and devotion. So he says, I've looked at you, verses two and three, in the sanctuary. And the sanctuary is that God-centered place where, where that's where he's looking. And, and that's what he's trying to recapture is that sense of worship. So because of, in verse three, because of your steadfast love is better than life. Right now, he doesn't feel like he has life. Right now, he doesn't know that he could count on his life existing through this wilderness wandering. Will he be caught and killed? Will he die of hunger and thirst? He doesn't know. So he remembers something better than life. Right now, we're reminded after this week that our own lives are not in our own hands. Sometimes they're in the hands of the unjust and the corrupt. And yet there has to be something better than life. And so, so that's what he's seeking. So, so what is it that's better? He, he holds to the steadfast love of God. That's better than life, that steadfastness, that covenant love, the faithfulness of God, because in the wilderness experience, there's an awareness. I don't know that I could trust others. And in our isolation, you start to wonder, I don't know that I could trust myself. So am I going to get through this by praising God enough so that he'll let me back in? And, and we seek earnestly, but, but we don't always manage how we're experiencing things and what we're told is what's better than life is not our experience of power and glory. It's the, it's the steadfast love of God, the world you can't count on, your own heart and mind you can't count on. But you can count on God. We've seen his power and glory. We know of his love. Because it's better than life, that will sustain our thirsty souls. That will give us the assurance that we are not left in the wilderness, but we're in the wilderness until we're led back. And so, so you, you think of how the people of Israel didn't want to forget the wilderness experience because when they were brought out of Egypt, because of their own sin, they didn't make it right to the land flowing with milk and honey, but they, they begged for water and God gave it to them from a rock. 
And so that fall festival, every time they had the harvest, they would say, look, this year we planted, it rained, it was wonderful, but let's sit in booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's remember that wandering because yes, this year it seemed that by our farming techniques, we fed ourselves, but let's remember uh, we never really feed ourselves. And when we were thirsting, God fed us. And so in John, the gospel of John in chapter seven, at the end of people from the various nations who've been scattered coming to Jerusalem to remember you know, whenever we've wandered, we've always looked to God. So here we are as a people celebrating that this year God has fed us. And Jesus stands up, and this is John 7, 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, so this is the Feast of Tabernacles of Booths, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living water. And that's what Jesus says. He says, are you seeking life? Do you want power and glory? Do you want eternality? Do you want to live in a wilderness or do you want to live in a kingdom? He says, if you trust me, I will satisfy your thirst. And out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Power and glory will come out of you, not in some corrupting, self-serving way, but in worship. And so the sanctuary, the place we want to be where we can root ourselves in the steadfast love of God is where we long to be. And so, Ren, that, that was one of the things, if, as you've talked about a, a guy isolated from a community, you know, that sanctuary is a, is a place that's meant to be where, where we're restored to God, but also to humanity. What is it about this sanctuary vision that David's holding on to that, that gives us an indication of, of what we do uh, in a period like we're in? Yeah, I, I did land on verses two and three, and as the spiritual discipline that helps us with wilderness and to look um, toward the sanctuary while you're lonely. And the two things that I, I thought of, the first I think is obvious, which is, you know, when you get to go to the sanctuary, you get to see God's sacrifice, the drama, the story of God's sacrificial love portrayed for you through the sacrifices, through the bulls being sacrificed for our forgiveness and God declaring through the priests that we are not distant from him, but that we are reconciled and united to him, you know, through all of the incense, through all the blood being spattered, you know, the, the very graphic and very brutal story of his great unstoppable beloved being poured out before you, you get to see that story in front of you um, dramatized. And you get to see that in the sanctuary. So I think that's the obvious one. The story gets told to you. The second thing I think what you get in the sanctuary is not so obvious. And that is that you get to be with the people of God. You get to be in the community. You're not alone anymore. You know, the, the one thing he doesn't have, I mean, he, he actually has God with him a little bit in the wilderness. <laughs> or else he wouldn't be praying. But what he doesn't have is other people, the people of God with him. And as he's looking back in his experience in the sanctuary, he's gathering strength. Because you, you and I, we walk to church on a day where we, we are struggling with doubt. We don't feel like singing. We don't feel like praying. But we're coming to meet with God. And sometimes the encouragement comes from looking around the room at a very diverse group of people who don't share your life experience. And yet they're coming and singing praises to God. And you think maybe, man, they, they must have some reason 
they know the same God. They, may, they might know something I don't. Or, or you think, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy for believing in this God because look at all these other relatively sane people. They are all the way in with God as well. So let me go with them. They remind us that there's something worth singing about. You know, I remember when I was on sabbatical and I, I was, went to Korea with my wife and my family, and we went to a church in the middle of the Korean countryside where there's nothing but farmland and this little tiny church. I didn't have anything in common with the people there. I didn't understand one word of the service. 90% of the congregation were above the age of 70. I couldn't have been more different than the people who were there. But I was comforted because I knew that they were singing to the same Jesus whom I knew as Savior. Didn't understand anything about it, but I felt more whole. I felt like I was belonging, a little bit less lonely. And this week, and I'll tell you, the one thing that really has made, made a difference in my life is that I haven't been doing well. But you know what helped? Was, was my friends texting me. My friends who serve the same God, and out of the love that God has given them and their love for me, they said, how are you doing? I'm sorry that you're going through this. Nina, you're texting. You're chatting right now in the chat. I'm grieving with you all at this time, my brothers and sisters, especially my sisters and brothers in the Asian community. That helps. That helps me. It helps me to know that God is still there. They give me a little bit. It gives me a little bit of a sanctuary experience. So David in the wilderness, lonely, mad, thirsty. One of his spiritual moves is to recall the worship in the sanctuary where the display of God's dramatic sacrificial love is and where the people of God gathers. He's not even there yet. He just remembers. He just longs for it in his prayer. And that's one of the things I think we need to be doing. That's one of the reasons I think we're gathering today with three churches. Yeah. Man. Hmm. So we come to the temple, we hear the story told, and then we see the body of Christ revealed. And I think what I hear in both Scott and Wren's exhortation to us and from scripture, what God is saying to us um, is what if the question we've been asking about the wilderness is what direction do I need to go in order to get out of here? As you can imagine, the people of Israel must have been asking Moses for 40 years. Can't we just choose a direction at some point? Wilderness has got to end. It's got to be a certain direction that we get out of here. But what God was trying to teach them, perhaps what he's trying to teach us, is that the means to the end of the wilderness is not a direction, friends. It's a person. The means, the, the wilderness is not a matter of direction. It's a matter of being with a person, to find yourself in love with him, with his body, the church, through that, encountering Christ. It's a personal love. It's an exquisite, scandalous romance. It's God himself that is the answer to our wilderness. In that sense, it is very much so the love of Christ that is more real than life itself. Uh, we're told in the New Testament that on the cross, Jesus manifests 
is the display of the love of God, if you will. Uh, he makes it real to us. And one of the particular ways that Jesus makes his love real to us on the cross is by taking up our wilderness. For what does he say other than, I thirst? Now, what is that other than him drinking up our thirsts, entering into our wilderness, assuring us that he knows uh, every pain uh, staking moment of being in the wilderness. Uh, he is being filled with the desert of your and my consequences. And I wonder if you noticed the psalm is a bit strange in language because it's what's clear is that we worship a God who is spirit. Uh, and of course, Jesus Christ is manifest in the flesh, but we are worshiping God who is spirit. And yet the psalmist uses language of I thirst for you. I want to taste you. I want to look upon you. These are sensory. These are tangible experiences. So church, let me just simply ask you, when was the last time you were desperate enough with God to say, I want a real experience of you. I need a real experience of you in my life. I want to experience you in a, a real way, as real, if not more real than, you know, encountering the love of your life and having that renewed. I want you to to experience that spirit would you fall upon me well that is where the psalm leads us to a desperate request to come before god and say even in my wilderness would you come and give me a fresh experience fall upon me oh god and what does that love do to us it makes us real i i'll end with this modern parable it's the story that some of you know uh it's a story of the velveteen rabbit uh, and now if you know that story, it's the story of this velveteen rabbit who's owned by a little boy. And more than anything, this rabbit wishes to be real. Um, and so I'm just going to read this conversation that the rabbit has with the old wise skin horse toy there in the nursery. What is real? Asked the rabbit one day. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a wind-up handle? Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you. Then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. But when you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up? He asked, or bit by bit. It doesn't happen all at once, says the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That is why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off. Your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and are very shabby. But these things don't matter at all. Because once you're real, you can't be ugly except to the people who don't understand. I want you to know that the love of Jesus Christ is better than life because friends, it, when it comes upon us, when we are filled with the fresh experience of the love of God, when we are dwelling in that, it's then that we realize that what we have is better than what the world tells us is real. It is then better than life. 
it's then that we're able to face a world that we might walk out in and have our lives threatened. How could we ever do so with a sacrificial love if we're constantly afraid of losing this life? Uh, but you see, if we have a love that is better than life, for what does Paul tell us? For I'm sure that neither death nor life, it can't touch this, nor angels nor rulers can't touch this kind of love. Things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from this love, the Psalm 63 love that is in God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So brothers and sisters, if it's been a very long time, or for perhaps some of you, you have never, you could say, I've never experienced the love of God that has made me feel more real than life itself. I'd like to invite you today in this particular and strange Sunday where three churches come together. Hopefully you've heard one message put before you, and that is that the love of God is better than life. And God freely gives that to all who would receive. The invitation is for us to come. Let me close this in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, um, what has been made real to us this week is that this life is so unstable. And that at any moment, we have no assurance of life going on from one day to the next. And that can debilitate us, cause us to fear and to rightly call out for justice and protection. And at the same time, God, you call us to find something that actually goes deeper than life itself, to find the love of God in Christ Jesus that would come and make us real to make us alive in a way that we have never been made alive before. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray for myself that if that, if that has been a long, long season, or again, for some of us, perhaps we might say, I've never experienced the love of God in that level. We're praying and we're crying out, God, would you rain that down upon us as we are in the wilderness? Would you come cause us to turn from our desert making ways and find streams of living water that comes from Christ himself. We come as not three churches, but one church under Jesus Christ who gave himself and is raised again so that we might experience and drink forevermore from that. So call your people to drink from that. We praise the name of Jesus. Amen.